So we're going to turn to Ephesians 4 now and continue our study through the book of Ephesians. So if you're using the Pew Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4, which is found on page 977. Actually, 978, because we're going to be looking at the tail end of chapter 4 and into the beginning of chapter 5. So it's on page 978. We're going to look at chapter 4, verse 25, through chapter 5, verse 2. So how many of you know the name Francis Schaeffer? Okay, lots of hands going up. So Francis Schaeffer was a 20th century pastor and apologist, um, defender of the faith, and author. And he and his wife, Edith, uh, they were in the United States for a while, and then the Lord took them to Europe and dropped them on um, a mountainside in the Swiss Alps, and they founded a place called Labrie, which is a term that means shelter. So their home in the Swiss Alps became like a hostel. You know what a youth hostel is, a place for people to stop off and, and have a place to stay. Well, it was kind of like a hostel where people would come, college students and others, um, university folks would come and, and spend a weekend or a week or longer, and they would join in the work because it kind of grew and there was, you know, um, uh, crops to be you know, harvested and, and all kinds of work around that uh, facility. So people would join in the work and then enjoy long conversations and discussions about the big questions of life and faith. And many people came to faith through the ministry of the Schaefers. So Francis was intellectually rigorous. He was an able apologist for the Christian faith. But he was also a warm-hearted lover of Christ and lover of people. And so was Edith his wife. That was actually a hallmark of their ministry. Uh, there wasn't a lopsidedness, um, like an emphasis on truth at the expense of love. And it wasn't lopsided the other way either, you know, love at the expense of truth. It was this beautiful, powerful wedding of the two. So Schaefer wrote an essay once titled Two Contents, Two Realities, and in that essay he says that there's four things that should mark a church where Jesus and the gospel are central. Sound doctrine, honest answers to honest questions, true spirituality, and the beauty of human relationships. He wrote, if we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. He wrote in another place, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but exhibition of the love of God, exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. Don't you want that to be here? It is here, but there's ways in which it needs to be here more, like soaking into every nook and cranny. And that's exactly 
at the heart of Ephesians 4. It's where God is pushing us and leading us, drawing us as we walk through this chapter and into chapter 5. So it's what God wants to create here at Bethel. It's what he is creating here at Bethel by his grace. So we're going to walk through chapter 4, verse 25 through 5, 2. But let's start first um, in the section that Tyler hit last week because what happens here is in the section that Tyler preached last week, it's kind of wide-angle lens. And then this section zooms in a little bit closer, okay? So let me just show you that. Last week, Tyler unpacked 17 to 24 of chapter 4, and he showed that there's two ways to walk. One is the path of the world, which is futile. The other is following Jesus in the school of faith. And he did a great job showing how that section fits into the bigger picture context with the theme of walking in the book of Ephesians, okay? The theme of walking is central in the book. So look at 4.1. Paul writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then the passage that Tyler preached last week, verse 17, no longer walk as the Gentiles do because you've been made new and made alive together with Christ and saved by his grace. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So walk in a manner worthy in the way you learned Christ, 420. And what does that look like? Well, putting off your old self and putting on the new self. So the old self is the fallen sinful self who we are in Adam, right? The old man. And instead, we need to put on the new man, recreated by grace. It's who we are in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And then our section for this morning, 425 to 5.2, further unpacks what it looks like to put off the old self and put on the new. So it goes from wide-angle lens perspective in 17 to 24, and now Paul's going to zoom in a little bit so that you can see practically, concretely, more of what it looks like to walk this way. And what we'll see is that the school of Christ teaches us and empowers us to live out this new life in Christ with new speech, new emotional control, particularly in the realm of anger, a new work ethic, new generosity, new kindness and forgiveness and love. So the first way he zeroes in, this is point number two in the outline now, is with our speech. So look at 425. Speak the truth for the good of the body. Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So this is what the put off the old self of verse 22. Do you see it back there? It's, this is what it looks like. Verse 22. Um, that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him, were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. 
So this is what it means to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, which we see in verse 25. So put off the old self, put on the new self. Okay, what do you mean, Paul? What does that look like? Well, here we go. This is example number one. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth with your neighbor. And in this context, neighbor means your neighbor, brother, or sister in Christ. Because look how he goes on. He says, for we are members one of another in the same body. So, we're going to notice there's a pattern as we walk through this section of putting off and putting on in these verses. So, you see it here, put off the falsehood, put on the truth, right? Speaking of truth. So, I want you to have this picture in your mind as we walk through because of this pattern that's repetitive, putting off, putting on. Remember when the prodigal son came home, you know, the story, the parable in Luke 15? Where did he come immediately from the far country but what was he doing go ahead feeding pigs in the pigsty okay so he came to his senses in the pigsty so how do you think he smelled when he came home what kind of shape do you think those clothes were in when he walked back into the village And here his father had compassion on him and ran to him and covered him with his best robe. So he did not have to get himself cleaned up before the father was willing to see him or wrap his arms around him or put this robe on him. I mean, that's just a picture of the gospel. We we don't have to get ourselves cleaned up to take a bath. You, when you come to your senses and realize the mess you've made of your life and your sinfulness and your need, you come home, you repent, get out of the pigsty, and you run to Jesus. And you don't have to get cleaned up to be accepted. You are embraced, but then certainly we get cleaned up after the fact, by his grace. So it's not in order to be accepted, but Because we're accepted, we get cleaned up by the grace and truth of God. Okay, so here's the point. Again, this image, we can walk through this passage with this image. Certainly, after that exchange on the road, you know, what did the father say? Hey, go kill the fattened calf. We're partying tonight. And what do you think that son went and did? He went and took those filthy clothes off and he took a bath, and he got cleaned up for the party. So how wrong, how ugly, how dishonoring, how weird, how strange it would be if he had put off his father's robe and showed up to the party in his old raggedy, reeking clothes. No, he, he put them off, filthy garments, happily took a bath, put on the clean clothes his father provided. So that's what it's like to put off falsehood. I don't want to be characterized by that and put on the truth that we've been given, that we've learned in the school of Christ. So if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, if we're going to no longer walk as the nations, the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, darken in their understanding, then we've got to put off falsehood like raggedy, filthy garments. We've got to put away and refuse to cave in 
to people-pleasing and lying and half-truths and exaggeration and flattery and manipulative speech and gossip. So sometimes this stuff kind of comes on too quick and we only realize it after the fact, but how many times have you been in a conversation and you know that if you speak the truth, it's going to cost you? So in that moment, there's a little faith battle going on in your mind. And you can either put on the raggedy, stinky old garments. Is that who you are? Or you can trust the Lord and put away that falsehood and speak the truth in love. That's what it looks like in real life. This is the school of Christ, right? We need to trust him. We need to learn to trust him. He is trustworthy. So we don't have to take matters into our own hands. That's what we're doing when we lie, right? When we choose falsehoods, we're taking matters into our own hands because we're afraid of the cost that we might have to pay or the fallout. So, brothers and sisters, let's walk in a manner worthy of our calling, putting off these filthy garments and putting on the truth and the grace and the strength and all of these resources that we have in Christ so that we can speak the truth with our neighbor. So, in that moment, don't tell your conscience to hush. You know, sometimes it could be in that moment, in that conversation, you cave to people-pleasing, you lie. You can stop in the middle of that conversation. You know what? I, I was afraid of looking stupid or whatever. I actually don't know. I'm sorry. Or you realize it after the fact, and you can go back to that person and say, you know what? I totally exaggerated there. That's, that's not... That's not true. Speaking the truth in love, putting away falsehood. So do you need some of that today? Let's not care more about looking bad than being bad. The old former self, let's put that off and put on Christ. Let's care more about walking in a manner worthy of our calling and building up the health and the strength of the body by speaking the truth in love one to another so we can put on truth and truthfulness like a robe because this is who we are, right? We're not the pigsty person anymore. We've been made alive together with Christ. We've been made new. So this world lives by spin and manipulation and false advertising and false promises and exaggerated claims and cowardly evasions. That's not who we are. If you're in Christ, that's not who you are. We belong to the God of truth. We follow Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. We are indwelt by the spirit of truth who can give us power to speak the truth in that moment, even if it's costly. So remember what Marcia read. Zechariah 8 is a picture of what happens when Yahweh shows up and dwells among his people. So he had to judge them, you know, the exile and all of that, but he's also promising a day when Zion, the city of God, is going to be the faithful city, the true city. And he will be their God in faithfulness and truth, and he will do them good 
and they respond to his command in verse 16. Zechariah 8, 16. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgment that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Therefore, love truth and peace. And when that happens, so, so this is the people God's going to make us. This is the text that's underneath Ephesians 4.25. Oftentimes when you scratch a New Testament text, there's an Old Testament text underneath it. And Zechariah 8 is underneath Ephesians 4.25. So when this happens, what happens? Well, people want to come and be a part of a community like that. They're tired of the lies and the spin and the propaganda and the false advertising of the world. They want to live in God's city with God's people, the city of truth, the people of truth. And Zechariah 8, 21 to 23 begins to happen. Look at it again. Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. So when truth starts to take root among the people of God, and they speak the truth in love, and become this faithful city, this faithful, truthful people, God is dwelling in the midst of them. People want to get in on that because they're tired of the spin and the lies. And finally, the reason that Paul gives back in Ephesians 4 25 is because we are members one of another. So what is this but the calling that we've received, right? Again, it's in the context of all of chapter 4 and actually all of the book of Ephesians thus far. We were alienated from this king and his kingdom, but by grace, through faith in Jesus, we were brought near by the blood of Jesus, reconciled to God, reconciled to each other, members of the same body. So we should speak the truth with our neighbor because we're members of the same body. Lying, falsehood, does violence to the body rather than promotes health and growth. As one commentator um, by the name of McKay wrote, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. But truth, on the other hand, is like nutrients for the health and the growth of the body. So, that's the first way that Paul zooms in and he focuses on our speech. So we speak the truth for the good of the body. Secondly, or the second way that Paul zooms in, it's point number three, to make this worthy walk more concrete is in the realm of anger. Okay, so point number three, righteous anger and spiritual warfare, verses 26 and 27. Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So just as we scratched Ephesians 4.25 and we found Zechariah 8 underneath, if you scratch Ephesians 4.26, guess what we find underneath? Another Old Testament text, Psalm 4. Okay, so Psalm 4.4 says this. Be angry and do not sin. You see, he's quoting, referencing Psalm 4. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. 
So what's clear from these texts, Psalm 4.4, as well as Ephesians 4.26, is that there is such a thing as righteous anger. Be angry and do not sin. God certainly has righteous anger, right? And his people do too. Have you ever thought about what anger is? Anger is a judging emotion. It says, I'm against that. That is not okay. It's something that we feel when something's not right. Especially when that thing is not right and it hurts or does damage to other people or to us. When that's not right rises up, anger rises up. So we live in a pretty broken, messed up world, right? There's a lot of things that are wrong with this world. So much unrighteousness. So anger can be a righteous response to wrongs. In fact, sometimes it's part of what it means to be righteous and to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We should not be okay with wrongs in this world. We should not be indifferent or apathetic in the face of injustice or violence or exploitation or abuse. Just one example of a righteous indignation or a righteous heart, Psalm 119.53 The psalmist writes, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. When people forsake the law of God, people get hurt, right? Because the law of God is ultimately love God and love neighbor. So there is such a thing as righteous anger, but we do need to be careful, don't we? Very careful here. Because more often than not, let's not kid ourselves Our anger is unrighteous and toxic. Why do we get angry? Why do you get angry? Why do I get angry? Do you ask that question when you do get angry? Because oftentimes it's because I want to be God and my will is not being done and I don't like that. I'm against that. I want my will to be done on earth as it is in my own mind. I want my kingdom to come. And I get angry. And what do we do? We bring the wrath and condemnation when things get in our way because it's selfish and prideful. Again, this is a judging emotion and we're judging. We're saying, I'm against that. So Ed Welch, uh, biblical counselor, writes this. He says, what angry people are sure of, oftentimes, again, we need to be careful because More often than not, our anger is unrighteous. What angry people are sure of is that the problem lies in the object of their anger, not themselves. Pointing the finger, it's out there. The general rule for angry people is that the more extreme the anger, the more confident they are of their rightness and the more unaware they are of both their anger, sinful roots, and destructive disposition. We should be alert to anger's disguises. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus targets our tendency to reconfigure the law so that it condemns others but acquits us. Aren't we oftentimes really, you know, nitpicky and harsh with other people, but we want mercy and grace and understanding with us? 
every day grumbling and complaining, seething silence, or any version of turning away from someone in judgment makes the anger list along with the obvious hotter versions. There's a lot more anger in our lives than we realize. So Welch then goes on to show how jealousy also is a dangerous thing that yet has a righteous version. Okay, so there is a stream of jealousy that is rare and beautiful. It says, you are mine and I want you back. Its strategy for getting you back is not reckless rage, but pursuing love that has your best interests at heart. That's God's jealousy, right? But obviously there's a sinful, unrighteous jealousy. Anger's the same way. There is a righteous anger, but there's also an ugly, unrighteous anger. So righteous version, it has the glory of God and the good of others at heart. Righteous anger is not in hot pursuit of selfish desires. It is in hot pursuit of God's desires and the good of others. So it's really easy to be blinded by and blinded to our anger, so we've got to be careful. We need each other to actually see our sinful anger, and we need to put it away, put it off when we see it or when it's pointed out to us. So one of the ways to do this is to guard against the angry response to provocation because when we get provoked, we can either nurse that and have it grow, like, you know, kind of put it on simmer on the front burner, you know, pour a little more in every once in a while, just let it simmer there, nurse it, feed it, or we can deal with it before God. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It doesn't mean, you know, you can be ticked off. You know, if you get ticked off at 9 a.m., you're good. God doesn't care, you know, until like 1130 or whenever you go to bed. Then just make sure you take care of it. No, that would be kind of like an overly literalistic interpretation of what he's saying here. It means deal with it quickly on a daily basis. Don't let the embers of anger smolder you ever built a campfire or have you ever had a wood stove? When you have hot embers that smolder, all it takes to restart that fire is some kindling and blowing on it a couple times. And have you ever wondered why we can be so quick to anger? Maybe it's because we're always smoldering. Maybe there's stuff that we haven't dealt with that's just keeping things hot. And so the one added thing in traffic and you lose it. I know I've certainly been convicted lately of this. Um, like, man, why am I so quick like, I need to repent. I need grace. I need help, Lord. I think I'm empty. If I'm full of anger and quick to, you know, get irritable, frustrated, rather than a long fuse. The devil loves to stoke these fires. 
He loves to feed our irritation and our smoldering frustrations and our pride and our selfishness. So putting sinful anger off and away, not allowing it to fester and smolder, guess what? It's spiritual warfare. It requires spiritual warfare to fight against sinful anger, doesn't it? We need God's help so we put on the full armor of God so that we can fight in his strength. But it also is spiritual warfare. You see where Paul goes next? Don't give an opportunity to the devil. <laughs> Be angry and do not sin. Deal with it daily. Don't have this you know, smoldering. Don't nurse your anger so that you don't give any opportunity to the devil. This, this is always needed in our world, in our lives. But I think maybe it's needed in particular right now. I think the, the challenges and kind of the, the issues of pandemic and all kinds of restrictions and whatever else over this past year plus have made people, made, influenced, pushed people to be, have you noticed over the last year, being a little bit more irritable, a little quicker to anger, short-tempered? So why is that? Well, some of it is okay. I mean, we don't like this pandemic thing with all of its consequences. There's things we're against, right? We don't like restrictions and economic loss or uncertainty. You know, we don't like lack of freedom. We don't like politicians telling us what to do or not do, especially if we disagree with them. We don't like wearing masks and living more virtually than in person. We don't like being lonelier and less connected. So the embers can easily smolder and all it takes is one relatively little thing that gets in our way and we snap. God help me. God help us, right? Don't we need help here? So the book of Ephesians is here with all these resources, all this grace that is ours in Christ. Our calling is so great. All that we have in Christ, we've been given all the spiritual blessings in Christ so that we can, practically speaking, when the rubber meets the road, battle our pride, trust the Lord. I want to be slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. God help me. So Ray Ortland writes this. He says, anger stomps on the devil's landmines. Lies, spin, slander, false accusations, lust for controversy, tribal superiority, church splits, and even outright violence. The devil loves hanging out with angry people. I suppose for him it's funny how they keep falling for his same old tricks. This is why I don't trust my anger, and I don't trust yours either. If you come recruiting me for your cause and your appeal is, look how wrong they are. We've got to do something. Well, they might be wrong. They might be worse than you think. But I keep remembering the words of Paul Reese from years ago. <laughs> the early Christians did not say in dismay, look at what the world has come to. They said in delight, look who has come to the world. <laughs> Wouldn't that help if that was our perspective? And that doesn't mean that we just kind of go through life with rose-colored glasses and don't see anything wrong. Of course we see things wrong but we're not going to let it steal our joy and just get us all keyed up and, you know, ready to snap at the drop of a hat. Jesus got angry, but what did he get angry about? I mean, just, he got angry with Pharisees who 
put these oppressive burdens on other people, but they didn't lift a finger themselves. They were hypocrites. I mean, he wielded a whip, upended tables because his father's house of prayer for all the nations was being turned into a den of thieves. But when he was slighted, when he was done wrong, think of him before Judas, before the Jewish court, before the soldiers, before his crucifixion. He didn't lash out. He was serious when it came to the danger, the damage that was being done to others. And that doesn't mean that you don't ever stand up for yourself if there's abuse or whatever else, but we're just so often oriented the other way. We defend ourselves, but we're not inclined to stand up for others. So instead, like God, may his grace be operated operative in us so that we would be slow to anger and quick to put off sinful anger and put on the new man, the manner of life we learn in the school of Christ. Again, God help us. The third way that Paul zooms in and makes this put off, put on exhortation concrete and practical is found in verse 28. It's point number four on the outline. What are your hands for? Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest or you, actually the word could be translated good, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So once again, we see this put-off, put-on pattern, right? Of course, we should not take what is not ours. Why? Those who are in Christ have been supplied with the lavish riches of mercy and grace and redemption. So we don't need to take matters into our own hands. We can trust our Father. He knows what we need before we ask. We don't have to be anxious about what we're going to eat or wear. Instead, let's seek first the kingdom, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, and trust that he'll supply what we need. So we put away stealing, and we do good and honest work. We put that on, a godly industry. But not as an end in itself, it's so that we can become providers for those in need. Again, this is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Industry and generosity, not idleness and theft. So I've used the illustration before, but not quite to this extent. So the story in Les Mis where Jean Valjean was this thief who went to prison and then finally he gets out, but he'd been you know, so abused in prison he was kind of like coming out like an animal, just a survivor, just ready to... And this bishop took him in and feeds him and cares for him and gives him a place to stay for the night. And how does he return the favor? He steals the silver. And the police pick him up and take him back to the bishop's house and say... Look what we found. You know, he stole this stuff of yours. And what does the bishop do? He says, oh, my dear sir, you forgot the candlesticks. And that mercy, that lavish mercy and grace broke him and turned a thief into a benefactor. And that's what can happen for us. We don't have to be on the take. Even if we're not stealing, we don't have to be focused on for me, what about me? What about me? The Lord takes care of us and his grace, his lavish mercy and grace turn us into 
industrious workers who want to share and be providers, not consumers, but providers and benefactors for those in need. Fourth way, Paul zooms in and makes practical the put-off, put-on of a worthy walk. Verses 29 and 30. This is point number five on the outline. Give grace, don't grieve the Spirit. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as, as is good, it's that same word for the work that is good, um, there in verse 28, honest, agathon, agathos, the same word, um, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I don't know about you, but this is a pretty convicting text. (laughs) You live this one out every day? Oh my goodness. Only. The only words that come out of your mouth. Such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, there's some wisdom required here, that you may give grace to those who hear. That is a sobering text. Walking in a manner worthy of the calling. We need grace for this if we're going to live this out. And yet, also, don't miss this. This text is so full of promise. So it's sobering because our tongue is like James 3, right? Small member, but it can set our world on fire just like a spark can set a forest fire, start a forest fire. So we need so much grace from God. We need the Spirit of God to fill us so that our speech will honor Him, bearing fruit of the Spirit in our speech, so that we can walk in this manner worthy of our calling in our words, through our words. But also there's promise here. Do you realize that your words can build up this body? (laughs) Do you realize that you can be used by God to give grace to your brothers and sisters? Like, He intends for that to happen today. Like, do you come in intentionally and prayerfully, like we need even reminders to do this. Lord, I don't feel like I've got much, but would you give me your words and your wisdom so that I can be a means of grace to somebody today? And not just on Sunday, but every day in your community group. Lord, you're praying through your group. How could I be a means of grace to so-and-so as they're going through this trial or this struggle. Lord, give me some words to build them up, to encourage them. God will answer those prayers. And what if we're all doing that? What if we're all approaching Sunday morning like that? Like, I don't want speech to come out of my mouth that's, you know, corrupting and, and will cause the body to be torn down. I want to build up the body. So you say this is possible, I need wisdom so that it fits the need of the moment. I want to give grace to those who hear. This can happen. Proverbs 12, 18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Sometimes that's what our words are like. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. God can use you and me to bring healing through words. Don't you want to speak this way? So let's soak in the grace of God and pray for the grace of God to fill us up, our minds and our hearts, so that it pours out of us in our speech. This is what's going to build us up, not tear us down. 
It's going to happen in our families, in our relationships, our friendships, our community groups, and in our church. And then, just as anger can be an opportunity for the devil, well, our speech, if we don't walk in a manner worthy of our calling in the school of Christ, can grieve the Spirit. So look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit is a person, not an it, not a force, not an energy field. He is a person and he can be grieved. He is the one by whom you were sealed, stamped, with ownership for the day of redemption. You were redeemed, and then one day you'll be totally set free. You belong to God. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the spirit of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So this, the spirit, he's the seal of our new ownership, our new owner. God owns us. So in our speech, in our work, in our generosity, we make it clear who we're walking after. Either Christ is our Lord, not the prince of the power of the air, right? Don't act as if you belong to somebody else. You've been redeemed by Jesus. Don't act as if Satan is a better master and the old life of slavery is, a better, than, is better than freedom in Christ. That kind of thing, putting the, the dirty pigsty clothes back on grieves the spirit. Because the Spirit wants us to be clothed with truth and grace and self-control and reflect the worth of our worthy Savior. So don't grieve the Spirit. It ties, it kind of ties off 429, but it also zooms back and creates this transition because the rest of this section is like a summary. So Finally, we're kind of zooming back out, big picture, put away the threats, point number six, and walk in godly love, uh, the threats to unity. Look at 431. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, along with all malice. So again, think pigsty clothes in a box. Do you want to put those stinky things on? Go around the village? What would that say? What would that say about the father? Why would he do that? That'd be crazy. We should want to just get rid of those things once and for all. All of these words, all of this section has to do with relationships in the church. All of them, both the bad and the good, have to do with unity. So these are threats to unity. We need to put off all the stuff that's a threat to the unity and the health of the church. So the prohibitions here are intended to remove the threats, remove the destroyers of unity, and the positive commands promote and protect the unity that the Spirit has created and produced. We are to be eager to maintain that unity. So listen, I think we know this, but it's always good to be reminded, growing into Christ's likeness and maturity is not something you simply do by spending hours alone in Bible study and prayer, although Hours alone in Bible study and prayer are a good thing. Vital to our health and growth. But when we do spend time with God, he fills us up and leads us out into the world of relationships. And look what it looks like. 
Look at verse 32. Remember, this is an exhibition, Francis Schaeffer, an exhibition of the love of God in practice in beautiful relationships. I'm just going to read this slowly. I'm not going to make a ton of comments here. But this is what a worthy walk looks like. And don't you want this to characterize your life and our life together? Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love. You see how we've zoomed back out? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So put away the stuff that kills and tears at the unity and growth of the body. Take those filthy clothes off on the regular. And let's put on the character and the grace of God. Think of his kindness toward you. Think of his tenderheartedness toward us. Think of his forgiveness toward us. How much has he forgiven us? Matthew 18, that parable, he's forgiven an in, like innumerable debt. And then we turn around and choke our brothers and sisters on something that is relatively so much less. It's because we've lost sight of his grace, his kindness, his forgiveness. So we've got to soak in the gospel. We've got to soak in the truths, the grace, the kindness of Ephesians 1 to 3. And then there's the reflex that will happen as a result. As we drink this in and it fills us up, then we extend it to others. Kindness as God has been kind to us. Tenderheartedness as God is tenderhearted toward us. Forgiving others as God has forgiven us. Imitating God. Because we're beloved. He's made us a part of his family. We want to reflect his image. We want to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We willingly then give ourselves up in love for others. So you can see how all of this is grounded in the gospel. All of it's grounded in the grace and love of God. So if you are short on kindness, guilty, chief of sinners this past week, Battling a hard heart, guilty. I'm, not, I'm telling you that. Having trouble forgiving. How, what do you do? Saturate your soul in the kindness of God toward you, his tenderheartedness toward you, his willing, forgiving heart toward you. We can't divorce Ephesians 1 to 3 from 4 and following. So let's not give Satan a foothold. Let's not grieve the Spirit. Let's soak in the gospel and all the grace that's ours in Christ. And let's walk in a manner worthy. Get rid of those stinky clothes. Clothe ourselves with Christ and walk in a manner worthy, walking in love. As the musicians come up, I'm just going to close with a quote by John Stott. We'll pray and then sing a closing song. So John Stott says this. What is the theme here? A stirring summons to the unity and purity of the church. But they are more than that. Their theme is the integration of Christian experience, what we are, Christian theology, what we believe, and Christian ethics, how we behave. 
they emphasize that being, thought, and action belong together and must never be separated. For what we are governs how we think, and how we think determines how we act. We are God's new society, a people who have put off the old life and put on the new. We need to recall this by the daily renewal of our minds, remembering how we learned Christ as the truth is in Jesus and thinking Christianly about ourselves and our new status. Then we must actively cultivate a Christian life. For holiness is not a condition into which we drift. We are not passive spectators of a sanctification God works in us. On the contrary, we have purposefully to put away from us all conduct that is incompatible with our new life in Christ and to put on a lifestyle compatible with it. Let no one say that doctrine does not matter. Good conduct arises out of good doctrine. It is only when we have grasped clearly who we are in Christ that the desire will grow within us to live a life that is worthy of our calling and fitting to our character as God's new society. Amen. God help us.